Welcome to Stepside. Joel Johnson and me, Matt Howie. Each week we talk about truck news, truck-related items, our favorite trucks, everything trucks. Trucks, trucks, trucks. Let's go. Would this be our first? No, it's probably be our second of the year, right? Whoa. Sounds right to me. We're on quite a tear. It's March. <laughs> Episode two. Woo! I feel like really what we are doing here is that we should just take these podcast recordings and make sure each of our therapists are subscribers. (laughs) (laughs) And then the work will be done. Right. Yeah, that could cut down on at least one hour a month. So I saw an amazing YouTube video with an audience of one. All right, I haven't seen this. Send it to you right now. Get this. Airstream opened their doors to designers from Porsche to like build... To remodel a new Airstream made of mostly carbon fiber, but with aluminum cladding. But it had to meet this criteria, which was be light enough. Well, that's probably the carbon fiber. Light enough for, like, Porsche Cayennes to pull. It also had to be less than six feet or seven feet tall, so it fits in an American garage. Because they know Porsche owners live in places with, like, homeowners associations. So it had to fit in the garage. And they also wanted to be able to walk upright over six feet inside of it. So... It has air suspension that drops it to the ground like a low rider to fit it into your garage. And then it has a pop-up central like roof. So it can be six or seven feet tall inside. And it looks amazing. I don't think they ever made it. It's just like a design exercise. But it's kind of like what would we do with the most efficient tiny little... In the, in the end, it's like a very fancy horse trailer. like Which is like... The smallest Airstreams are just basically converted horse trailers. They have these giant back doors that open up and stuff. Like the smallest, like $25,000 ones they sell. So yeah, like with all this carbon fiber and like tech, I don't know what this thing would be like. And for Porsche owners, this would have to be like a $50,000 to $100,000. But I was like, man, the the one person, the Venn diagram of all these circles is Joel (laughs) Johnson. (laughs) He would pull Uh, a trailer with a Porsche and like fit it in his garage and like, holy shit. I mean, this only really works if you're pulling it with like a Cayman, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I I don't know that you got to get the whole experience. Cayenne is the the SUV. That's what I'm saying. It's not truly cool until you're towing it with a sports car. I didn't see this video, but I did see it go through. And disclaimer, uh, I have done work for Airstream in the past. Like, I know Bob Wheeler a little bit. You know, I'm an Airstream fan. Like, if I were... If I were going to buy a travel trailer, I would certainly consider an Airstream. I think the work is in, you know, is best in class. But also, let's be real. They're big trailers that they glue a bunch of stuff inside of and they are what they are. <laughs> Mostly I would buy them because they are the only travel trailer that has any sort of brand, so they tend to hold resale values and that yeah. part is nice. It's kind of funny that they're midwestern old-timey company and they have this iconic design from god almost 100 years ago what 80 years old but it's like so iconic that they can still sell at a really high premium the smallest ones are 50 grand like the little bambies mm-hmm. like and the biggies that you see at a boat show it's or the whatever, power like of brand baby yeah no i mean I just and also you got to remember yeah. too like they hit the skids uh you know probably during the 80s and 90s they were uh, the airstream is one of the one of the 50s Americana revival things that I think, you know, when that started from the 70s with American yeah. Graffiti, Happy Days, all of that stuff, and Airstream was just kind of one of those things that, like, uh, like diners Screamed. got yeah. got pulled into Americana, and it just so happened that 
they still existed. They were still making yeah. them. And now it's come full circle where, you know, the, the Airstream is the Yeti cooler of RVs, right? Like, are is Yeti bad? Do they make a bad product? No. Like, Yeti stuff is great. But is it worth three or five X what a Coleman <laughs> cooler is worth? Yeah. Probably not. Um, but you know, the thing I do like about them and actually this is a project, it's already all launched. This is all, you know, there's been two or three iterations since I touched any of this stuff, but what they do do with the brand as the marquee, they're the halo brand for Thor, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, they, and so they get a little more money and a little more, uh, flexibility to do this kind of stuff. Like, Hey, let's do one-offs or like, Hey, let's do like some tech projects. That's what I worked on, which was basically just like connected uh you know five lte like based like crap. connected yeah yeah smart which actually like they were very even in, at that point very wise about how they were trying to deploy it they weren't trying to do anything crazy they were just like we just want to upgrade you know this is what our customers are looking for all you'd want is like control the heater or ac from your phone so when you walk into your trailer you know on a hike but then there's no cell coverage in most of the places i go so yeah, but, I mean everything's going to get switched over to satellite at this point. So you know that the, uh, the, the future of this is is satellite. I just can't believe Airstream navigated this so well for the last sixty, eighty years. That they're like the Apple brand of like RV shit. Mm-hmm. Like that is the pinnacle. Like if you have if you've made it and you're retired and you want to show off, like you got to get the cleanest aluminum Airstream. That's the only choice aside from like the massive rvs they're like buses yeah you basically can go class a with a prevost or you know like one of those million dollar rigs which to me frankly are probably real better signs of wealth that is a grandpa who invested well (laughs) oh i would live in a class a i would go live in a class a all day long they've got that outdoor premium yeti uh patagonia like that kind of space the other thing that airstream has going in their favor and they do a good job with this but i honestly think it's mostly an accident when i've worked on the oem side every time a car company wants to show how uh out their outdoor Mm. cred or they want to do like a drive program yeah. We can tow something. It's always Airstream. And Airstream yep. is always showing up. They work with all the OEMs and they're like, yeah, you know, here's your beautiful new space thing. But instead of it towing what 99% of the market is, which is square, boxy, pop up kind of things, they're like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're our brand can tow this premium thing. But I have a friend that has one of the smaller ones, uh, the the little guys, and I can't. Bambi was, yeah. I think Bambi's discontinued. I think there's like one, like there's a new a version, 16 but it's sixteen and nineteens, yeah, like little ones. Those are, if I was going to consider anything, those are actually super sweet because yeah. you get for all two the people. you for two people. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. I wouldn't do it with kids or family uh, or yeah. big kids at least. But what I do really like about those is putting the price aside because they're still pretty spendy. It's like you get all the creature comforts. You get a kitchen, you get a shower, you get a toilet. It's clean, easy to clean, well designed. It's aerodynamic. And like, but you're, then you're in the woods and it's still a small trailer. Like, I, my, I am, you know, this is canon in the Stepside universe, but I am like generally anti trailer, not for anybody else, but for me because I just don't like towing things. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the experience of towing things, certainly off road. But, there's no argument. You'll never hear an argument from me that like for real, just camping, like a travel trailer is actually probably the best solution versus overland builds or whatever it might be. 
Uh, back on the uh, the ads point, I do remember specifically VW getting in a shit ton of trouble in the early 2000s because I was like watching the Touareg news when they were going to make their big SUV. And the first Touaregs were like V10s or V12 TDIs, like these monster yeah, diesels tens, with like, yeah. T- yeah, with tons of torque. And like a friend had one and like they were amazing and super fast for how big they were because of the diesel. But uh, their very first ad to show its cred was with, like, a 23 or 28-footer, a humongous one. And it was just for illustration purposes, right? Just for the photograph. Because the first Touareg owner who got the V10 went out and hooked up their Airstream and then blew up the transmission in, like, yeah. 15 minutes. And then VW had to, like, lemon law replace that person Touareg and put out, like, a press release saying, please don't do what that. we put in our ads. Oh my god, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was so goddamn funny. It, they were just like, we were just making a, a fucking magazine ad. Get off our asses. And then the person's like, why would you put you know one of the major models on the new Touareg if it didn't happen or if it couldn't happen? <clears throat> my favorite travel stuff. trailer still of all time is my Uncle Vern's because they had a, I don't know what you call the semi-truck size trailer, but it, it has like the tall pieces at the top and then it kind of dips down. Um, you know, it's like a flatbed, but it's got a little uh, kink to it. And they had mm-hmm. one of those because they, they move farm equipment with it. Yeah. Like when they go it's buy like a combine a or whatever. car hauler trailer, like you fit like three cars on it. Yeah, something like that. And, uh, and so, you know, they've got the trucks to pull all that. They go buy, you know, their whole business model, such as it is, is like they go buy 10-year-old, equipment from some mm-hmm. auction or whatever but they're great mechanics so they bring it home they get it back into shape and they spend seventy five thousand dollars on something instead of like half a million dollars well they had the trucks they had the trailers and then they decided they wanted to start doing some rving so Vern just bought a trailer like a just the trailer part of a trailer like just the living part uh the the box like, and they just the wheels <laughs> Yeah, and they just forklift it onto the same trailer they use for everything else, and they ratchet strap it down, and then they drive to Montana. With the ultimate travel trailer, I was thinking old truck bed, you know, the people making the trailers, put like a camper shell on that, so you could just, you could still have a truck, and you could occasionally have the camper and your truck, you know, if you're pulling it, but... This um, is why my eventual build that I'm currently scheduling for 2027 uh, is all about, you get a flatbed, in the back yeah you can pop some rails in it if you need to have a a normal bed or you can just winch down or set down your camper pop-up or whatever and then you just have modularity like they're really like that is always the best solution what's the cheapest most modular way to use one thing the most versus having specialized equipment for everything a friend uh, has done the like early retirement thing where he like sold his house and his goods and him and his wife got a big ass GM truck, you know, like a 2500 something uh, diesel, you know, long bed crew cab. And then they got this massive like 20, 30 foot trailer and he was just cruising around the country and RV lotting it and stuff. But uh, this is what I've learned. It sounds like absolute hell just day to day, like anything with weather, anything with wind. It's the worst thing in the world. He fights that car all the time, and it's all because he got a regular trailer hitch set up, and he had to do this whole counterweight system that cost thousands so it didn't fishtail um, because he, he opted to never use a gooseneck trailer, you know, in the middle of the bed. Mm-hmm. That would have been a thousand times more stable. <laughs> like, you could pull a semi-truck trailer, you know, from the middle of a truck bed, but if you go off the hitch, 
it's like it's horrific. Things are breaking all the time. He's almost dying. Like, like I'm just watching his Instagram for the last year, just going, man. Like, you, it's clear. It's so much frustration in every post. Like he's like, I spent a hundred thousand dollars for this like new life, and he travels around, and he's like, he's a famous. He was at one time a famous like filmmaker for sports brands. So he'll just go to like some festival and shoot it for a company. So he, he's like making money on, on the on the trip, but. It's just like every. It's just like day one fourteen, you know. The semis just would not let up with the side winds <laughs> and like the stability. Our st- you know our ten thousand dollar weight stabilizer broke, and then we had to find like a part, and we had to go to Indiana and like. And if he just got a gooseneck trailer, none of this would happen. And he says like old people in their seventies are like they don't even want to hear stories because they're just like, why didn't you get a gooseneck trailer? But he had like a million bikes, so he was like, I want the truck bed. Like, I don't want to give yeah. up. The, and I'm like, okay, that is, he's like, you put it on the outside, they don't have to worry about security, and they always get muddy. Otherwise, I can put everything in the truck bed, and it's kind of safe, and I can put a shell on it if I want. But, like, yeah, he really wanted to use the truck bed for, for storage. It's wild how much a hitch makes a difference. I took an off-road trailer back into just, like, a, a national park in northern Arizona, and but it had one of the, like, kind of, multi-axis oh, the articulating like, articulating yeah. uh things it was great like just the fact that i never had to worry it had more articulation than any angle i was going to put the truck <laughs> and the trailer and so you know didn't make everything easy and it still had all the you know trouble of like trying to back up on a two-track like dirt road with uh with a trailer or whatever but at least it took out the question of of Am I gonna pop this off the ball hitch or something if yeah, I yeah. don't if I you know Or will it dig angle? into the ground? Those are usually like really high up and nice. That's yeah. the only trailer I would consider like a, a just a box with off road tires and a pop up tent that I could drop when I get to out there and then cruise around and sleep there, but then take it home. Yeah, those know? those like, the adventure trailer space was very popular, I feel like, fifteen years ago and then and then kinda got subsumed <laughs> it's by super popular like, now. Tents and it's, stuff. They're also cheap. They're like they start like yeah. ten grand or something for pretty nice ones. Well it's a it's a thing too. If you don't like it, you can just sell the trailer. And then if you <laughs> still like the truck, you can still keep the truck. Like every, everything in my head it's like <clears> I, <throat> I I've been dealing with that a lot of just trying to think about you know, what I'm going to do, uh, for the next build. And, you know, five years ago, I would have just bought a beater and then fixed it all up and bet. And now the beaters aren't available. I'm, I'm having to do a lot of thinking about like, well, if I go spend 50 grand on a new truck, then I kind of don't want to commit to the full 50 grand. Like I want to make sure that if in a year or two, my plans change that I can still get rid of it, which gets me back to a lot more like bolt on kind of stuff. But um, it, th- things are looking good for for old Jolie. Like uh, I know for <laughs> no certain. Way. No, I know. Well, just information. I'm still going to dither for another year. I'm sure. But the <laughs> AT the GMC uh, Canyon ATX four X wait AT four X drive is finishing up right now. Uh, I think Nissan just did another drive of Frontier, some some new, you know, just minor little update, year-on-year update. Hmm. And I'm hearing, but not from anything reliable, just from reading forums and stuff, uh, that the Tacoma should be announced within the next couple of months. So I oh, feel cool. like I'm going to have all my information in front of me very soon. Uh, to set which the stage is, for another year of hand wringing. 
dude. I mean, this is a problem <laughs> when you run your own business and you do all this stuff. Is like, you know, I have. It's not like I can't financially afford these things. But right. part of the reason that I, I can just want to pull the I trigger can, once. Well, I what I don't want is to have to buy it and then regret it and yeah. or know that I made a financial mistake. But I absolutely over-index on it and am way too anxious about it. And my thinking still is like, if there's a Tacoma with a hybrid engine, that'll probably be where I go. Even if it's the premium trim or whatever, like I just, why not? Um, and if that doesn't happen or it's not going to happen for a year or two, I'm liking what I'm hearing about the Chevy's. And, you know, maybe I'll just go pick up a Chevy, uh, like a yeah. ZR2 or something, and then just move on to my next anxiety fit. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, train that muscle in your brain to the new thing. It's like that uh, Mr. So, Show yeah. joke about the reformed gay guy, David Cross, being, and he's on the evangelical thing, and he's like, and he has a another backside planned for the spring in Acapulco. Like, <laughs> I feel like that's how my life is and will be for the rest of it now. Is like, well, I've finally gone through all the mental hurdles of this one, and so I can just plan on the next freakout. I think we we recorded right before the Super Bowl last time, and I thought the big Toyota ad would drop there, and it did not. Um, but that means I got the Rivian. I think in mid February, almost uh, pretty much three years the day I ordered it. That's um, so wild. The way it came, it, it was such a pain to get it. Uh, it was, I had all those insurance issues. They eventually rented a flat top truck and dumped it on my driveway, which is what they promised in the beginning. But, uh, you know, when you do your order, it's like, this will be delivered to your door. Uh, they wanted me to come into Portland for like two weeks and pick it up. And I was like, ugh. And they're like, we'll pay for your Uber. And I'm like, it's going to be like a hundred bucks for like an hour and a half Uber to there. Uh and then in the end, they wouldn't release it without some insurance stuff. But when I told them, like, can't you just dump it on my private property? <laughs> like, I have insurance. I just don't have enough insurance to prove. They wanted six to nine months of prepaid insurance, and my insurance agent wouldn't even. Uh, it was so dumb. Um, they really, I think, I think it, uh, Tesla's, you know, the whole EV outside the dealership network stuff, they, states, like, I think the dealers got together and bust you know the non-dealer companies a lot oh for so sure direct, that happens a lot they're doing everything they can to fuck over uh, direct-to-consumer shit you know from undermining the dealer model so i've heard tesla owners in oregon also complain about like weird insurance requirements they're just way above and beyond anything anyone's ever heard of you know and just just to make it difficult so showed up it's good it's good it's good it's nice <laughs> well at least you love it at least yeah, it's it's been worth it's still week. it's still way too fast way too much if it had half the power it would be a perfectly i mean i think cadillac makes an escalade like v like 7.4 liter you know escalade now you know like a fast yeah. one that's like yeah, a hundred fifty thousand dollars or something yeah uh, and it's it's you know like that thing doesn't have as much power as a rivian it's bonkers like it's insane. It breaks your brain to be in like a 7,500 pound car that can do zero to 60 in three seconds. It makes your body hurt, like queasy. Like I can do two launches maybe a day before I start feeling weird because it's like so many G's <laughs> on your like, like that's why I heard, you know, astronauts always say like, we weren't, des like, humans were not designed for any of this. Like we shouldn't be able to handle five G's on a space launch and people pass out and that's, that's what happens because like we're not designed for it. Um, so yeah, like the launches are fun. It really gets, you know, I'll do it to every friend, you know, to make them giggle. 
you can actually like power brake it. It does sort of a launch mode where you just like slam the the brake down and slam the gas down to the floor and then let go. And it just, I mean, s- screams. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't corner that well. It is a very big car. It feels like a Suburban when you're driving it. It's probably like the size of like a Honda Pilot. But, you know, it's kind of big inside, three rows. The third row's really, really short. It's probably for like seven-year-olds. Um, uh, I've never put more than four people in it, so I don't know what that would be like. Um, I am going to take like, uh, I've been watching YouTube videos I want to take a trip to the Bay Area really quick, like in two or three days and back. And uh, I want it to be like, I'm going to trust the system. I'm not even going to like, I had an mm. electric car in 2016. I used to have spreadsheets and like 12 apps on my phone and I'd have to plan everything meticulously. And this thing just tells you like, go to this fast charger, go to this fast charger. Um, the problem is like a friend with a Tesla was showing me that um, we plan the same trip, like from here to the Bay Area. And as Tesla, it's like, you're going to charge two or three times at these places. There are this many chargers available. When you get there, like we were doing it at night, it was like at 2.30 in the morning when you show up in Modesto, there's probably going to be, you know, the chargers are going to be this busy. It had a graph of the 24 hours. And then it said, uh, you know, these are the nearby services. Here's where you can get food. Here's the bathroom code. Um, like, here's which parking spot you should pick, uh, how long it'll be there, and when you can leave and all that stuff. When you go in the Rivian, it says, like, you should stop in these two or three places, and they have fast chargers up to 150 kilowatts. But it has, like, no information on how many spots are available, how many are being used now. Um, And I'm watching YouTube videos of people just doing um, California road trips, you know, with a Rivian truck. And, like, they'll show up somewhere like Harris Ranch and smack dab in the middle of, like, Kalinga. And, like, there's one fast charging station, and there's... Like all eight brands of high end EVs are like jockeying for the six positions, and like half of them don't work. Um, you know, the one the guy gets is only charging like 40 kilowatts or 30 kilowatts, and and it says 44 minutes at 150 kilowatts, you'll be on your way with 250 miles in 40 minutes. And it's like, he's like, So we went to dinner and we're like walking around, it smells like cow poop. We have to be here for three hours just to make it to the next city, and like. And they'll say, like, a lucid air came in and went, and there's all these pole stars. And, like, it just sounds like, you know, like, Tesla spent 10 years building a charger network, and it's really tight, and they own it from soup to nuts. So they can tell you, like, how many spots are available, how many are out of commission. They could set up a bathroom. They can tell you Denny's is nearby and there's a discount. Like, all that stuff is amazing on the Tesla side. But on the non-Tesla side, it's kind of a crapshoot. Um, Tesla yeah, did announce in- that they're gonna allow like non-teslas to charge there if that's you like. right yeah but it's like Which nothing on the west it's already coast up. yeah yeah it's on the east coast right now and i think there's one in the bay area test site and that's it but yeah i you know almost coming on 10 years ago when i first started working with car companies to do this like so many of the strategic not not, not money wise but just like from a pure consumer adoption standpoint so many of the exercises that we did ended in you're going to have to build a charging network <laughs> and every OEM, you know, doesn't want to do that. Like, yeah, yeah we can't it's do not, that. it's not the twenties or thirties anymore where you could have like charging or gas station networks that were owned. Not that that happened a ton. Obviously that was mostly from the oil company, standard oil and all of that, but yeah. it's, there's just not enough. There's not yeah. enough charging. And I, it's becoming, I think a, strategic risk 
for these OEMs because totally not based on any data, just anecdata and conversations I've had. There's a lot of people that I know that desperately want an EV and have been presuming for the last five plus years that their next vehicle will be an EV who are starting to go, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's actually time yet. Like the, the you get an early adopter bump uh, and an early majority bump of people that get excited about even the, the weird parts, but there's a bunch of investment happening from OEMs, from governments, from like, it's, it's still, I, I do, it's going to get fixed. Like I'm not worried about right. it getting fixed it's in the long like term. It's just like five to 10 years, I think. And it's not a great business yeah. because it's like, yeah. at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out, you're working with local power companies to get a tremendous amount of power brought safely <laughs> to a random parking lot, often in the middle of a city, you know, if you're not doing the easy ones on a highway. And yeah. then you've got to charge people for it. And all of the app ecosystems are incompatible and it's far more complex than a gas, you know, there's not a gas pump in the United States outside of some- That requires you know, an app. <laughs> corny place uh you know that has like an old-fashioned thing that doesn't take a credit card uh it, it's there's no reason these shouldn't just be credit card and go like anything else and have, on top I've, of that we're reaching a point with some of the original networks where the charging stations themselves need to be upgraded or are no longer operable so you're back into an infrastructure business and that's probably not a bad business but it was not it's not a sexy business and it's not just fun I just signed up for a bunch of services right in anticipation of like looking at the charge. Like I need to be on three charger networks to go to California. Uh, so I signed up to all of them. Of course, every app is terrible and doesn't allow copy and paste and makes you put in a credit card. Like I sat at home spending 15 minutes like signing up for each service. And I'm just like, if I was on the side of the road, I'd be so frustrated, you know, that this yeah. just doesn't work. Uh, We're in the like pre iPhone era of EVs yeah. as far as yeah. software and hardware integration goes, yeah. where there's a bunch of people and engineering companies where software design and ex user experience is not their forte. And they're like, no, it's great. What do you mean? It works great. And it's like, <laughs> no, there's a, there's a it's big so gulf fresh. between it works and it works great. Like, and yeah. They don't even let you use password managers when you're signing in and like create a password. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit. Uh, you know, where's my man? You know, there's no key. Sim like they're just not even, you know, using the Swift UI code. And like you'll get to what's the expiration date? And you get a query keyboard and you're like, you know, 1225 is what everyone needs to write in. It should just go to a number layout. Like there's so many dumb things. But um, I noticed like they have a nationwide price, too. And I was just like, I thought, Thought, um, Silicon Valley asshole libertarians ran these whole things. It should be like on-demand pricing or or char. You know, there should be. It's always like around fifty cents a kilowatt for charging, which you know, in the old days, my original electric car was twenty-two kilowatts. The new one's like one thirty-five or something. So this is why we need these like massive, you know, three hundred and fifty watt pipes with massive amperage and shit because the recharge rate is crazy and you need that fast stuff. But um. 50 cents a kilowatt is like bonkers in Oregon because Oregon's like two and a half to five cents a kilowatt for home electricity. Mm -hmm. Like cheapest in the nation because we have like Bonneville Dam. But California can approach 50 cents a kilowatt in San Francisco like in the daytime. And like the price of EV charging. Like you'd think um, I'm selling a five cent thing for 50 cents is a great business, like infrastructure business. 
I'm making 10 times what it costs me to deliver electricity. But um, I just noticed it was like 48 cents nationwide. And I was like, hmm, I was charging at 2 p.m. in um, San Jose, California. You know, I'm probably getting market rate electricity that EVgo or whatever is like losing their shirt on. Um, well, I think yeah, you've started a new business, which is you need to you need to buy electricity in Oregon, uh-huh, and then you need to truck. ship it. Yeah, put it on a truck, right. and then and unload it. it. Maybe in a liquid form, um, and put <laughs> tanks. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, I, I have seen there's there's been another like little resurgence in in like e fuels and hydrogen stuff uh, as well. There was a Tim Stevens I think went down to Chile and uh, looked at the Porsche prototype hydrogen fuel conversion that went up. I can't remember if, I feel bad. Actually, I don't feel that bad. He's been freelancing for a million places, but I don't remember what side it was on. Maybe Road and Track. And uh, you know, there's there's something to that too. Um, uh, but I, I love all of that. I love it from a science standpoint. I love it from an engineering standpoint. But I still just keep looking around and going, the next company, and it'll probably be Toyota is what it's looking like. The next company that says, we're just going to build a bunch of hybrids and they're going to be cheap as hell, are going to sell so many cars for the next five to ten years. And oh, easily. it's it's... I do feel like, and it's too late to fix this, I think, but I do feel like the switch over to EV from all of these companies, they've just gotten out ahead of themselves as far as the mm-hmm. products are fine. They're good. Uh, but if you don't have all of the rest of the infrastructure in place, there's going to be, you're going to hit demand, the demand side of sales much faster than you, uh, or the supply side much faster. What am I trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you're going to saturate the market uh, of the people that will deal with it uh, before yeah. uh, bef- before you know it's you're ready cart- and you still need to have a bunch of yeah. products to sell. It's a cart and horse problem, and we've got all these, uh, I guess, carts and not enough horses to recharge. Like uh, uh, I was, my HVAC broke for the millionth time this week, and the guy like new Jeeps and saw my Jeep and was like, "Hey, that's pretty badass." Oh my god, you got the hybrid? Why did you do that? And I was like. Because, man, I think an electric off-roader would be amazing, like pure electric, amazing torque, quiet. That would be incredible. But, like, it's almost impossible to get to Moab in an EV today and charge it and use it each day and charge it up again. There's no high-speed chargers there. I was like, that is 10 years away from happening. So I bought this middle ground car, and it works pretty good, you know, and I can drive it thousands of miles um, and charge it in, like, an hour, Um for in town and then i can take a thousand mile road trip and it's fine too um but like yeah i think like these these problems are not gonna be solved anytime soon so yeah uh in other mm-hmm. off-roading news it's not booked yet but i may be going uh on a i, I can't even talk about it yet because I, I haven't gotten a green light so i don't want to spoil my chances <laughs> of getting a green light but i may be taking a built ranger uh up near the edge of uh death valley to go visit some crazy locations and write up a nice. little story about it uh i'm going to la in a couple of <clears throat> weeks in early april and uh so i started looking around going like all right like what can i go do some off-roading even if i don't have my truck built yet and so uh i'm i'm just more excited to be you know i spent a week in moab a couple of weeks ago uh we were doing a, a trail race and it just, oh, right. you know, I'm I'm happy to be where we're at, but God damn it, it was so frustrating to just look around and look at a map and be like, 
I am surrounded by trails and camping, and it's encouraged that I use them. And it's BLM. It's free. Yeah. I love people at the at the race, and they were just so nice and like, yeah, we're really excited, and we know we like everybody going out there as long as you treat (laughs) treat everything right. And I'm like, yeah, oh, this is the best terrain by far. I I get mad when I watch a new off road YouTuber, and they'll like pan around his car, and I'll see his license plate is Utah, and be like, fucker, the guy's based there. Like, like I'm used to. There is a good YouTuber that does a lot of Utah videos. He lives in Kentucky, and there's another guy who lives in Tennessee, who like. That is so insane. It's three days each way, bonkers for them, and they go every few months. Uh, um, yeah, God, Utah's so great. Um, oh, I experienced Death Valley in the most amazing way like 20 years ago. I was training for the LA Marathon, and we did the uh, Death Valley Half Marathon. It was in like February, and it was still like 70 or 80 degrees, like yeah. perfect in February. And like there's the little wildflower bloom, you know, when it rains once a year. It was so magical, but uh, turns out it was a one-way, uh, like point-to-point race. And at five in the morning, while it was pitch black outside, we had to get onto a series of Greyhound buses. And me and my buddies all jumped on the bus we thought was the correct one. And as we're driving out, I'm just like, man, everyone this bus is so like gaunt, and they're working on their kit and their backpack. And I'm like, I think these are ultra marathon because there was oh, a no, it was a marathon, a 50 mile, and maybe a hundred mile. And we signed up for a, something like some weird like 19-mile uh, race. It was like 30K or something. So it turns out we got on the, we got on the 50-mile bus. So these guys were just ultra dudes. That you could just tell they just looked weird, you know. And the driver was like, well, I can drop you off at the next marker. You'll end up being doing like a 22-mile race. Not quite a marathon. But like, hey, you don't have to do a 50-mile with these guys. So we did it. And all we do is run on Jeep trails. We just like... They just sent you out to the edge, like the eastern edge of Death Valley, and they ran back towards, you know, the middle part of Death Valley. And we were just running on Jeep trails, and there was, like, decaying mining, you know, operations yep. that were abandoned 100 years ago. It's the most beautiful thing in the world, and we just kind of, like, ran down a big hillside down. It actually turned out to be a good training run, like, in the lead-up to a marathon. It was, like, perfect distance. It was wonderful. It was great, and it was... It was weird to be at a running race where everything was so low-key. Like, someone would set up a table with, like, Costco food. And you just come to a complete stop and, like, eat pretzels and peanut butter. Because yeah. you, you're on such a long haul, you know. It's not it's not a speed race. That was that was some... We did... This was a Trans Rockies uh, race, which they kind of did... I think they started as a BMX organization. Huh. And then... And, and mountain biking. And then several years ago switched to... Or added running a, as well. And so, Crystal, a few years ago, had done... They it was the Trans Rockies run, which was I think a five day run if you do the whole thing. Fuck. She did three days. Um, like you're running the rib, the Continental Divide, or something trail. They, I, I don't know. I don't remember. I was there, but I don't remember what the the trail was. Was it Colorado? Then, yeah, it was in Colorado. Yeah, and uh, you know, at the time, Crystal was like super into this trail running stuff, and uh, she she ended up getting an injury that kind of took her out for a few years. And a few months ago, we saw this Moab race and was like, oh, it's three, it's three days and you can hike it if you want. Like they let you hike it and still be part of the race system. And it is very chill, very, very fun people. Like 10, 15 miles a day or something? So the our, we did the half version, which was 13. 10 miles one day, 17 miles the next day and eight miles the last day. Didn't do the third day. 
because I had a such a bad time on the second day that I was just like miles. I, but it was a really you know what's been funny about the whole experience is like I you know I did a little bit of training. We did a lot of hiking through the winter, and I've been you know on the Peloton and doing stuff like physically. I was getting through it, like, Mm -hmm. but mentally I had to, and it wasn't even like my own mental battle. It was the battle of realizing that I was, if not the slowest person out of 400 people there, like very much at the back of the pack, but in a way that it made me go like, oh, I am taking up the space of somebody better (laughs) than me that probably wanted to get in it. And I had such a storm on the second day that I was like, I've just got to take a break. And I, and I don't regret that. I think that was the right decision. <laughs> but, uh, but weirdly the last couple of weeks since I've gotten back, I'm like, that was pretty fun. And like, and I, if I trained all year and I did it again next year, like I, I could at least do the half and finish and, you know, probably get some better, better times, but it was real, um, you know, I, I grew up playing sports. I, it's not like I wasn't an athletic well, kid, but it, this is the first hard thing I've done in, yeah. a, in the many years that wasn't self-regulated. And I will say, I learned that I prefer solo. I'm the same way with truck outings. Like I love to do a 20 mile hike in a day and like whip my own ass, but I like to do it at my own pace and I don't necessarily like to be around other people. And that's fine. And I don't think that's going to change. But I also, uh, I also, <laughs> I also have been like trying to just metabolize this a little bit and be like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm cranky. Like <laughs> I was just around all these people that were having the time of their lives and were cheering and wearing inflatable dinosaur things. And I was furious the whole time. I was just like, you guys aren't taking this seriously. I this hate this. Like, yeah, it's just like, and I, and I, uh, I mean, there's nothing to say except that Dude, I have 20% to laugh at myself. Twenty percent of every run is like silly tutus. Now at this point, it's just somebody shows up like thinking it's a party, even when you're doing something hard. I think the one variable you cannot plan for is six thousand feet above sea level at Moab. Like I live at 150 feet up above sea level. I can never. I mean, I have to overtrain. I have to be in amazing shape to to survive at six thousand feet. But there's no way I can excel. To yeah, be I'm honest, sure that I didn't have a problem with it. We got there a day ahead of time. Like if we were up in you know ten or eleven thousand oh, yeah. feet, would, like yeah. I think it'd be uh, worse. I don't but... get. Yeah, I get headaches at like twelve and up, but just going from zero to six, it's just like, why am I short of breath? Like I just went up yeah. a stairway, and then you go, oh shit, I'm at six thousand feet. Like, I mean, I had, I took a mountain bike all the way to Moab, and I had like one hour of good riding in me, like before I was just cooked because of the elevation just there's just no air but oh when you do death valley uh zabriskie point the most beautiful spot in that whole place like i remember hiking the whole thing and getting to the top and you know it uh when you see all these like fresh-faced people come out and they smell like deodorant while you like have been trudging for three or four hours and you go what the fuck and there's an rv parking lot at the top mm-hmm. of like the mo- it was like so desolate and we like made it and then we were like civilization but um that was beautiful uh one time i hiked telegraph peak it's the highest point like in the death valley chain 7500 or 7700 um and we did like a 14 mile hike up and to the top and back and at night our water froze and this is in february or march um 
water froze and then the next day we went down to the lowest point you know to chill it was the greatest trip in the world because we were freezing our asses off for 24 hours straight and then we'd hike that peak and come down and it was 90 degrees in, in yeah. at the at the whatever the bad water death valley is so good i i haven't been out there for whew, several years it's only but. good from like december to february though like it's just like so hot now yeah no i'll be pushing the edge of it but i'm not if i do this trip i won't actually be going into death valley i'll be in the mountains around it so oh, like it, it should be it should be okay i looked up on trails thing and like the hardest core trails this like uh, bypass to go from one side to the other and there is some little lumpy section in the middle to get to little nuts that you might need to be lifted for but it's pretty oh chill. yeah I, I think if it's the pass, it's like Humphrey at... pass or something yeah or some... i've so I've done that. It's Death Valley is actually it's pretty easy trail. Yeah. Like depending depending on I'm sure there's stuff that isn't, but that if that's the one I'm remembering properly, there's a couple of places where there are big rock ledges that are very flat. They're like giant stair steps. Um, mm-hmm. but there's only like three or four of them, and there's a place where the pass goes through that if your wheelbase is too long or you're not lifted enough, like you can high center kind of on the edge of those. Um, but besides that, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty well trafficked it's and it's pretty travel trails everywhere. It seemed when yeah. I was there. Yeah. But it's a, it's such a cool place and you can go to the dunes and, you know, be like, why are there dunes here? This makes no geological sense. Like, uh, it's, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it was very good. <laughs> There's a lot of Oregon dunes, right? Like dune, the book is written because of Oregon sand dunes, uh, mm-hmm. sand dunes, sand dunes, like. As a kid, my dad, CJ7, we would go out to Mojave Desert and, like, go rock picking and look for trilobites and stuff. And we would get stuck in um, sand constantly, <laughs> and then my dad would air down, and we'd usually get out. And when I look back at it, it's like you had a 7 and, like, a 10-year-old, and you were four hours from anything, and there was no such thing as a cell phone in 1981. And, like, you were just fucking getting your Jeep stuck by yourself. Like, yeah. it's psychotic with two children and no water. No, the, and like... the farm I grew up on, um, so my my parents were basically, like, managers. Uh, some Puerto Rican guy had bought, like, a thousand acres of cedar scrubland in the Ozarks. And he had my parents come in and just, just to have somebody on the property, right? Like, just to, you know, keep an eye on things. And for money... I mean, with this guy's permission, but for money, my dad would get in this old international flatbed we had and drive out, you know, as far as he needed to, to cut a few cedar trees down and take them to the lumber yard. And my first memories, and there's, a, I've even heard, they told me stories because this is before I remembered a lot of it, of like, yeah, they'd be out in the winter in like a snowstorm. 20 miles away from our trailer or 15 miles away from our trailer, just in the middle of nowhere with me bundled up in like a car seat or something, cutting trees down with, and yeah, if something would happen, it would have been done. And I didn't think about it at all. Not that I had the best parents in the world, but like, <laughs> I, I, I think about this a lot cause I am so anxiety riddled and I can talk myself out of so much stuff. And I'm like, it's getting better as I get older. And I think part of that's just middle age being like, Oh, I only got so much time left. Like it's now or never. But, uh, that's, that's how I feel about it. So much of the, uh, trails, off-roading, camping, hiking, whatever it is where I'm like, I would have to try to get stuck out here at this point. Like right. my well. phone has a satellite communicator. <laughs> in it. Like, like I, 
uh, there's no there's never been a safer time in yeah. life to go explore these things. Yeah. So like you know I'm not saying it's be reckless. It's still possible, but yeah, yeah. I mean all the. Yeah. Half the entire sport of overlanding is preparing for the worst and being overprepared. That's all it is. I always call it Boy Scouting with a credit card. That's all it is. Overlanding is just preppers on trucks. You know, it's like mobile preppers. Yeah, that's all it is. But like my my Jeep is so overly prepped. I can sleep in it now. I have like seven or eight recovery like uh, points and equipment for it. And like I got the cell phone booster for far off comms, and then an SOS uh, satellite phone, uh, and like my daughter will like go up in our hills, and like the moment you leave my driveway, there's just no more cell phone coverage, and she got her truck stuck in mud yesterday without telling me until she showed up, and it was covered in mud, and like she said she was getting a death wobble, and I think it was literally mud inside one of the wheels. That's right, um, yeah, kicking off the balance. But uh, but I was just like, you gotta tell me. When you take off, which road, there's two or three access roads, which one you went up so I know which one to go after you in, and, like, when you think it will be back. And I tell her, like, every time, the time I was in Moab alone, I would send a text to my wife before and after, like, the start of the day and the end of the day with, like, a full itinerary of, like, I'm going to do these two trails. I'm going to be in this area, be in this area. If you don't hear from me by 8 p.m., something's wrong. But, you know, I'll text you at, like, 4 when I get out. And it worked out every day. But, uh... But I was like, you have no idea. Like, all, like you're a dumb teen. You have no idea, what, like all the crazy shit going on in the background and how dangerous it is. There's, She's like, this... it's no big deal. I'd only be a mile from the house, and I'm like, yeah, yeah but, but like I don't even know where to go look for you or which you know. And there's I no, mean... you'd walk, you'd have to walk for a long time to get a cell signal to call anyone. Well, and it doesn't take much to. We're still human. Like our bodies yeah. are still frail, and so like. It doesn't take much for something to go sideways. And I'm all about prep. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, we keep a blanket in every car, even though we just drive around our suburbs. You know, like, we just in case something goes hairy. Crystal's a firefighter, and, like, you know, we are aware of every single car accident that happens in the county. Like, it's things can still go wrong, and I get really frustrated with people that think safety is uncool uh, <laughs> or like just makes the adventure less adventure But the reality is for the planet at this point, and especially when it comes to vehicles, there's no, there's no through anymore. You know, it's like every road's been traversed at least once. Yeah. You're not, you're not exploring new territory. Like that all ended a hundred years ago. <laughs> That's done. And so, like, yeah, go have fun. Go experience these things and these places with your own eyes. That's that's great. But you're not uh, you're not proving anything by doing it in a risky way. Uh, but the flip side is, like, people like us, like that have more money than than sense, like, will also completely over-index on a build and an equipment when we should be over-indexing on experience, training, and skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This reminds me of the uh, in grad school. I decided to take a blow off fun class, and it was scuba, and it was like a whole semester, and it was only like I don't know, fifty bucks or something. You'd be scuba certified at the end, and I was like, rad. This would be like my Tuesday night indulgence, and it was like five months long, you know, a whole semester, and four months of it was like how not to die. Every single hour in that fucking class was just like 
Here are the hand signals you need to use. Here's what happens when your first tank goes out. Here's what happens when your auxiliary tank goes out. Here's how, and you're just like, when do we get to fucking swim? Well, like, I swear to God, we didn't get in the pool till I think two weeks before the end of the semester. And then, you know, you did one pool day and then they made us do some hard swim tests. And then we did one ocean day as like a, like a the, that was it. Yeah. And then we got our dumb scuba cards. I never want scuba again. <laughs> it was just like, they, they drilled it in your head that, when you're 30 feet down under one extra atmosphere of pressure, you might as well be on the surface of the moon when it comes to, like, get rescued right now. That it was no, like that's not even true. Well, like, that I, was kind of how they put it in our heads, and I was just like, oh, my God, I could die at this point. Like, it really, like, it got through my uh, anxiety filters, and, like, I basically never went to scuba again when I was done with the whole thing. So uh, I'm also it was cold in winter and shitty. Yeah, well, you, California scuba is a different experience than tropical stuff, but, yeah. like... I, I don't know if I've even ever mentioned this to you before, but I am a relatively experienced diver because I grew up diving and I mean, I've been underwater a couple hundred times maybe. And like, uh, like Florida shit. Uh, that's where I started. So, yeah. you know, I, I started as like a Captain Ron style drunken, <laughs> drunken thing. Um, but I've done some fairly, you know, medium technical dives, not anything like super hardcore, but I've done, uh, a lot of stuff off of California, like, uh, um, uh, Channel Islands and yeah, some yeah. wreck diving and a little bit of cave diving, that kind of stuff. And uh, I actually now, like my default advice to people when they ask, like, how, you know, what, how should I learn scuba diving? I'm like, go to the tropics at a dive resort and do the dive re- resort training. Mm-hmm. Because everybody that I know that took a class that was six weeks long, uh, I feel like that's the that's the opposite example of this where you're overtrained. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's all academic and it's all in your head. Yeah. And it's and I'm not saying that scuba is safe. I mean, it's pretty safe depending on what you're doing, but it's like so much of that until you actually put it into practice it just doesn't seem real. And right. like the first time somebody kicks, <laughs> there's a diver in front of you and they kick the regulator out of your mouth because you're too yeah. close to them and you have to like figure out how to put the regulator back in your mouth. Guess what? You never get close to a diver again. <laughs> and also, you know how to do it. And like my experience, because, uh, you know, it's it's actually motorcycles and scuba are the two things that I have a lot of experience with that are don't jibe with my generally anxiety riddled personality (laughs) but but part of the reason that i did those things and could do those things was that even if they were you know some percentage more terrifying for me than the average person like once i was able to get into those experiences they were so all-encompassing that i chilled out and i could focus on what i was doing and diving was like that for me like I was so, my dive course was only like four days before I got into the water, three Hmm. days maybe even. Um, But uh, I was, the first time I got in the pool doing all of that, I was so stressed out. We (laughs) did like a little open water checkout thing that was in a carve out in the Florida Keys where they had carved a bunch of places for people to dock their boats because they thought they were going to build a subdivision there and they never built it. (laughs) And it was dark and cold and I couldn't see anything. I was freaking out in that. And then the very first time that, I mean, this is very Florida, but they were like, oh, you just come out the next day on the boat. We'll, we'll, we'll certify you out there. And, but, you know, I got on top of a reef and it was 30, 40 foot water and it was crystal clear and it was warm. And as soon as I got under the waves, 
all of my anxiety disappeared. Everything clicked. All of the training clicked. And, you know, and then I did it for years and, and years. And so, you know, that's that's the balance on a lot of this stuff for me is I will always be over cautious uh, than compared to the average person because that's what I need to do to feel safe. But I've also learned through experience that like there comes a point where you just have to send it. <laughs> like, yeah. There comes a point where it's just like, all right, just go. And if you hurt something or break something or die, like so be it. But you're you're robbing yourself of the experience if you over over train as I'm, well. I'm in the middle of ham radio studying right oh my now, God. and that is nothing but the edge case. You know that's what ham radio is for. All communication lines are down. Only ham radio nerds are here to save the world. That's how they train you. It's just like I have to remember during hurricanes what fucking bandwidth should be using, and I'm like. Uh, uh, when I was in Moab, I borrowed a friend's ham radio walkie-talkie, which is, like, you know, amazing, and the range is, like, infinite, and we were on, like, a our own custom channel, and we could just talk to each other. It just works. It's just a fancy walkie-talkie. But to get certified to be able to buy one and stuff for yourself and do all that stuff, I got to spend, like, three months studying every scenario that's never going to happen that's, like, over. What is that? AARL? Is that still the certifying body? Oh, uh, yeah, I can't remember. I'm just using some, like, ham radio online. It has a pretty slick... The only problem is there's all these lessons. You listen to them, they just test prep you, and then you take this test, uh, and they're just helping you, like, with all the stuff. But when you go to click on Chapter 1, there'll be, like, 28-minute and 12-second video, and they are packed with, like, mm-hmm. numbers and details. And, like, you know, at this megahertz, like... And I'm just like, why aren't these like five minutes long? <laughs> why aren't they quick and easy? Like, what the fuck? I've gone down, I've gone down the, the ham path twice, and <laughs> doing the same thing you're doing, like taking yeah. reading books, taking classes, you know, trying to do test, t- sample test, all yeah. of that stuff. And it, I, I, I think the best I ever did on like a hundred question test was like sixty. Like I was shocked at how hard it was yeah. and how I couldn't get into my brain. But I think part of it. And I tend to have, like, I'm a, you know, I was like a standardized test, like, like I would crush a standardized test when I was a kid. The problem for me was like, it was just pure memorization and Mm -hmm. I didn't have any understanding or framework of where the information went. Mm -hmm. So it was like, what channel is this? You know, like, what's the channel for this operation? And it's like. I don't some numbers. I'll look like, it up. Like I'll look it up when I'm yeah. gonna do. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I, yeah. I'm not. You're not dropping me into Iwo Jima. Like, <laughs> and I understand that you want this to be. You know, you don't want people to just clog up the airwaves and be irresponsible. But like the 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 set of questions and test. I don't know. It was just bad. Like it's bad. I, I, yeah, like and uh, I'm sure other people do fine with it. I've just it coached a I couple struggled. kids through the Oregon DMV test, and I remember the California DMV test when I was a kid. And I think it was a well-designed test in California in the '80s Dude, and '90s because it I've was never just, said this. In, yeah, go ahead. I've never said this in public. I've only failed a DMV test once in my life, and it was in Oregon. <laughs> Those that motherfucking test dude the written Oregon. test is a nightmare so in California, the written test is a nightmare and i'm telling I swear to god yeah. there are questions on it that are not in the the books right and yep. a lot of it is stuff that is it's like in, it's wrong pedantic. in my opinion where it <laughs> well, was, it was like they, what do you do at this corner when this situation yeah. happens and I, you know my i'm <clears> like uh i don't know i would do the safest thing they're like wrong in <laughs> oregon you have to like call your senator yeah. and see you know it's just like Calif- i, I 
I do remember the California test, and it'd be like, when should you turn on the blinker when you're approaching an intersection you want to turn? And and the answers were always logical, where you didn't have to study and memorize facts and figures. You just had to be logical. So it'd be like 10 feet, 100 feet, 1,000 feet. You go, well, it's got to be like 100. That seems normal. 10 is too soon, and 1,000 is crazy. And you'd be right. And then uh, we're taking the Oregon sample tests, and it says like, you're approaching the intersection, you want to turn right on, there's a one-way, and they always give you weird situations. But it says, when should you signal? And it was 425 feet, 450 feet, or 475 feet. And I went, this is right, the dumbest right. fucking test on the planet. Like, yeah. I was like, just pick the most conservative one, because that's the quote-unquote safest. But they shouldn't be asking you this like tiny spread. They should be asking you orders of magnitude. This is so Because they're dumb. not testing for judgment at that point. They're no. just testing for memorization. Memorization, yeah. Yeah, so dumb. No, I, oh. I, it was one of, obviously I'm still torqued up about it, and that was 12, <laughs> 13 years ago, but like, I just, I, I, and you know, it was that thing too where like, I, I think it was, I had moved from New York to Oregon, and of course, like, didn't update my license, and then I got pulled over or something, and in Oregon, they like, they're like, if you don't change it in within 30 days, you're screwed. And so they took my license and were like, you have to go redo a, a driving test in Oregon. And of Oof. course, I just waltzed in there to be like, well, you know, what is it's a driving test? Like, how hard could it be? And then failed and was just like, and then I moved out of Oregon. No, I, I was just like, I can't believe that you're, this is how you're doing it. Although, in, the, the flip side is, because I learned to ride motorcycles in Oregon, the Oregon motorcycle, like, training and testing uh, certification classes were incredible. Mm-hmm. And very pragmatic, like very, like I, I will never forget because my instructor was like, what is the one tool that you always have on a motorcycle that you don't have in a car? Throttle? And everybody's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And he was like speed. Yeah. yeah and he's like, ass. I am here to tell you that if you have to break a speed limit to be safe yeah, on in it. a traffic situation, do it <laughs> like, and, and. And I was just like, and then I paid attention to everything that man said for the next three days because I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, not because I, I mean, you know, of course I speed on a motorcycle or have, but it's like, oh, this is, you're trying to keep me alive and you're giving me practical tools to keep myself alive. Uh, Whereas like, yeah, 425, 50 or 475 is like, somebody's just I only know the uh, throttle trick because I was constantly i'm constantly watching low-end like beginner motorbikes you know review kind of sites then they'll do like here's the honda grom here's the honda you know all these 125s and 250s and they they say this is fun this is great this is cheap and it'll get you into motorcycles but you cannot get out of a bad situation with a 125 like if you twist the throttle it's going to take five seconds to get going away from everyone and I know from bicycles, I just want to be as far away from cars as possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, that's – motorcycle stuff is so funny because – So people, you know, of course, well, there's all the douchebag outlaw stuff yeah, where yeah. it's like, you know, I, I don't I have to do whatever. I went 150 miles like, you know, an hour. <laughs> yeah, what, like whatever. But there's like – there's there's this – I wouldn't even call it unspoken. It's pretty spoken. It's just such a small – in the grand scheme of things, small niche hobby uh, where – yeah, basically the the people that teach you how to ride and how to be safe and especially how to do, you know, daily ride or or long trips, they're always the the advice is always like speed through a group of traffic so you get out ahead of it. Like mm-hmm. like oh, you got to split a lane even though that's illegal, but that's what you need to do to like get out of a bunch of traffic. Better to split a lane and get through the traffic 
than be around other people. And it's true. It's just true. Like not in every circumstance, but like, yeah, the speed thing is really, really it. And I, even though I am a very cautious, safe writer when it comes to turns too too safe, that was a whole nother story. But like, there were so many times on all the cross country rides I've done where I can tell that I'm like about to get smashed between a truck and a semi or, you know, some, somebody not paying attention, but I've got a two second window that if I gun it right there, I can cut through them both and get out into clear air and you just do it because you don't have time to think about if it's illegal or not. You just do it because you're (laughs) keeping yourself alive. It's just funny when you watch intro content and they're like, "Mm, as a first time rider, you should probably get like a 600, 750, like you need like that burst because this 125 is going to get you stuck in bad situations. Well, that that's that. the that's been an, a long-standing debate in motorcycles is like what's the right size for a new rider? Uh because even a 600 uh can get away from you if you yeah. don't know how to ride cuz the, the big danger on a on a on almost any real bike and you know anything that that has power is that if you do anything where you're going to kind of start to come back the way the motorcycle throttle works is if you're holding on, but you're losing control, you're making it go <laughs> oh, faster. Oh yeah, you're going faster. <laughs> and, and so that what happens to a lot of early noob riders is they feel like they're falling off the back, which is never how you fall off a motorcycle. You fall no. off over the sides. Like you never just yeah. slip off the back, but they get into these situations where they freak out. And so if you're on a 450, 600, 700, whatever, like you, if you do that, it's going to haul ass because a 600 yeah. can be extremely fast, but yeah. that's the trade-off. It's like, all right, well, are you going to protect yourself from you? Or are you going to protect yourselves from other people? Um, but, but the, the answer for that stuff is always just like, it's actually how I learned to ride, like riding up and down the coastal range or over the coastal range in Oregon yeah. is, uh, get a 125 or a 250 and ride a bunch on two lane roads yeah. at 45 miles an hour until you like learn how to ride. Cause Bringing it takes this all 10, back to the beginning. Away. It's, a, it's interesting how, where EV bikes will be. Cause they have like massive torque and bursty power. <laughs> and like, you know, oh, that could kind of save Moab, your ass. When I was in Moab, uh, at, like at the last, like once I was already there, I was like, why didn't I rent a side by side? on one of these days mm-hmm. and like, just go do that. Like, God, because I saw a couple people running around. I was like, dang it. That was awesome. I also stopped by a land cruiser museum, which I can't believe we didn't even talk about, but maybe I'll save it for another time. <laughs> uh, but when we were back up on those trails, I was like, an, an EV bicycle would be so dope back here. Oh, like yeah. <clears> I can go <throat> explore. I can still get a little activity and be involved, but I can like not gas myself. Mm-hmm. So that I can focus on the terrain and everything that I'm looking at. Uh, I, I really hope there's going to start being, and, and I'm not very plugged in. Maybe there's more of this than I know, but a, a little more acceptance of like at least e-assist bicycles oh, on God. trails because like started. I want to do more and more of that. <laughs> so unfortunately, Moab is like super super anti e-mountain bikes, and like uh, there's threat there's threats of confiscating your bike five thousand dollar fines they consider it going off trail if you're on a bike path like a mountain bike path but mm-hmm. it's an e-assist mountain bike that is like it, you might as well be driving a jeep there that's how they're gonna throw the book at you and it's yeah. and like i've had endless arguments with other mountain bikers of, of like 
dude, it just weighs 20 pounds more. It doesn't do worse things to rock or slick rock or the tra- Like, this whole thing is moot. The funniest part was I took an analog, what do they call it, acoustic bike to Moab because <laughs> I was so terrified of the laws when I looked it up and I called the ranger station. They were like, all you can do is basically ride it on 4x4 trails. And I'm like, well, that's not fun, you know. And there's mellow, yeah. flowy stuff. And there's not a ton of climbing there. But, uh, yeah, the one morning I did the uh, hour or two of, uh, I think we were out on Gemini Bridges, um, blasting through some pretty yeah, easy Yeah, that's trail. where I was. Yeah, that's probably where you probably do the trail runs because it's kind of flat. Um, we were doing some fun trails. And, of course, I found, like, you know, a 65-year-old couple. And I'm, like, looking at the down tube. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These guys are definitely on. Like, I wish I was doing what they were doing because it's just so easy to get back to the start and do loops and stuff. It's, uh, like, yeah, the bike world needs to really grow up. That's why I'm going to I'm gonna get, like, an exoskeleton that fits under my pants. That, like, <laughs> and not tell anyone. <laughs> and not tell anybody. Yeah. Just ride, like, a carbon fiber bike that look like real hardcore. It's so stupid. Like, uh, cyclists get all territorial and, and, and tribal and circle the wagons. And they hate the idea of, like, old people or people needing electric motors until you ride one and the whole thing is moot. Like, it doesn't matter. It's the funnest thing on the planet. Even for a bike racer. You can still have fun on an electric bike once in a while. And, like, they just got, like, everyone I know either has gotten over that hump or hasn't yet. And, like, you'll be in an argument for an hour with them. And then if you just give them a bike for a second, they'll go, okay, I get it. I get it. This is the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. It's the dumbest, funnest thing in the world. Yeah. I think we could uh, blow this one out. This is Trailer Talk, our new offshoot. And when uh-huh. EV Talk. Trailer Bikes and Scuba. Uh, I think we talk. talked about trucks for about 38 seconds so yeah uh i'll talk about it next time because i won't forget but i will just so i can get my shout out out uh the land cruiser heritage museum in salt lake city is if you are a land cruiser guy very well done really very nice yeah i never heard of this it's been around for years um it's uh, it's in like kind of an industrial area. It's not in like a cool neighborhood. Do they have like um, twenty examples of every or whatever twenty they, total they or something? Have I, I'm just pulling a number out. I would say they have at least sixty or seventy vehicles there, Shit. all the way from pre FJ forties like the wow. FJ the twenties thirties the like early stuff. Jeep comp cop yeah like the World Japan. War Two era yeah. yeah they have that wow. stuff every, examples of everything both. In stock form and also built form. Wow. Uh, all the way up to, I don't think there was a 300 series there, but there was up to 200 series. There was an icon there. There were ones that have gone, you know, come out of Australia that have did, gone on big trips. There, there were those firefighting weird, ones. The mega one. The like They had two mega cruisers. Oh my God. Those things are like was bigger so, than a Hummer. <laughs> it was such, for a Land Cruiser nerd, it was so cool. They were, I mean, we, Crystal and I were basically the only people there for most of the yeah. time, but they were like really, really nice. You can get in and out in like an hour. I mean, it's just a big garage. It's like, here's all of these things. But uh, it was, it, it, I don't know that I'm going to buy another Land Cruiser uh, anytime soon, but as somebody who kind of had the bug for a long time, yeah, uh, it was it was very well done and really cool. They have a bunch of ephemera in the front too, of like toys and brochures or whatever. But uh, anyway, if you're in Salt Lake City and you're a truck person, absolutely just stop in. If you're running through SLC, go to the Land Cruiser yeah. Museum and there's also a Lebanese food place called Lazee's Kitchen that we stopped at that was <laughs> like some of the best Lebanese Middle Eastern food I've ever had. So In those are Salt my two Lake City. Two. Unbelievable. In Salt Lake City. Yeah, it was dope. Alright, thanks. See you next time. <laughs> You're welcome, Matt. Woo!